worship or whether or not worship is actually happening depends on the subject of all the verbs that you're saying and singing. Who is the one doing, right? Who is the one responsible for everything? Because that is who we're worshiping. The verbs in the Christian faith have to do with our salvation and our hope for eternal life. So the subject is always God, the one who is doing salvation to us. The centerpiece of the whole infancy narrative in the first two chapters of Luke is Mary's song here in verses 46 to 56 this morning. The Magnificat, it's called. Her song is the template for all worship songs. For all that we would sing and with which we would praise our God. God's salvation for the world is dawning here in the beginning of Luke's Gospel. His angel has visited Elizabeth and announced that even though she had been barren all her life, she would now conceive and give birth to the child who would grow up to be the forerunner of the Messiah, John the Baptist. But then God sent Gabriel to a virgin girl in the nothing town of Nazareth also to announce that she would be overshadowed by the Holy Spirit and miraculously conceive a child who would be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord will give to him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. When Mary visited her aunt Elizabeth, it was obvious that the Holy Spirit, who had overshadowed Mary, had also filled Elizabeth and the child growing in her womb. And together they rejoice at God's actions. He is the subject of their worship. This morning in the Magnificat, Mary isn't just singing for her. She's singing for us. She's singing for all who would benefit from God's great reversal. When in salvation, God breaks what is whole and makes whole what is broken. Let me pray. Our Father, we are thankful for Your Word. Father, would You help me preach, please, Lord, for the sake of Your name and the sake of Your people and the sake of the lost. Enable me to preach. Enable all that are here to listen and believe. Lord, be with us. Go before us and prepare the way in us now, I ask in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Beginning in verse 46 of Luke chapter 1. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for He has looked on the humble estate of His servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For He who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is His name. And His mercy is for those who fear Him. From generation to generation, He has shown strength with His arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich He has sent away empty. He has helped His servant Israel in remembrance of His mercy as He spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to His offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. The word magnifies in verse 46 tells us exactly what Mary's song will be about. She's praising God for His great works and deeds for the purpose of strengthening our faith, for comforting all those of humble estate or low estate, and also for terrifying the mighty ones of the earth. After the presence of God on earth has moved from the temple to the womb of Mary, this beautiful song concludes this section on the birth announcements of John and Jesus. The visitation in verses 
39 to 45 mark the physical coming together of these mothers, of these two salvation figures. But Mary's Magnificat tells us the theological significance of their meeting as Mary sums up her place in salvation history. Mary praises God and then she describes exactly how He has blessed her so much, so greatly. Mary's song is made up, by the way, almost entirely of Old Testament quotations with a particular emphasis on Hannah's song from 1 Samuel chapter 2 when God allowed her to conceive and give birth to Samuel even though she had been barren. But Mary draws from Psalm 34, 69, Psalm 35, 24, 111, 103, 107, 146, and Psalm 98. She draws from Habakkuk 3, 1 Samuel 1, Genesis 29, Deuteronomy 10, Isaiah 41, Genesis 12, Genesis 17, and Genesis 22, and Micah chapter 7. Mary's prayer to God, the song of praise, is informed completely by Scripture. That was the well from which Mary drew her praise. She was a remarkable young woman. She knew the Scripture. She is teaching us how we ought to worship and how we ought to pray on what we should base our words on in both of those things. We get the words of our worship from God's Word, not from ourselves. We sing of what He has done and what He is doing to us and for us. First, she sings about the privileges that God gives her. In verses 47 to 49, look there again. And my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Mary needed a Savior. For He has looked on the humble estate of His servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For He who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is His name. These are the particular mercies God has granted to Mary. For Mary to be blessed by God, she needed God to be her Savior. Right? She, Mary needed a Savior. She didn't have one. She wasn't perfect. Right? She wasn't divine. She needed a Savior. And this is what she praises Him for being in verse 47. His salvation is seen in the fact that He's looked on the humblest state of His servant. Looked with favor, with saving love. Think, when you hear humblest state, think lowest state, lowly. She wasn't something that anyone else would have noticed, much less have chosen for this privilege and task. This is the phrase that announces the major theme of Mary's song of praise to magnify the Lord, which is also one of the major themes of the Gospel. It's what Arthur Just calls the great reversal. It's in our DNA to think that you have to earn the approval of your superiors or of those that you want or wish to like you. Most of the time, It's true that you have to earn the approval of your superiors. And that's not always a bad thing. It's a good thing to learn respect and to do what you're called to do and fulfill your obligations and all this and gain someone's approval or respect. That's a very good thing. Drill sergeants, for example, don't take it easy on the weak link. They don't show grace to the weak link. They can't, right? It's the military. You can't, like, just... You know, pad the weak link. and You're okay. Don't worry about it. No, worry about it. Right? If you call a bank, for example, you can't just get the CEO on the line for a friendly chat. You're lucky to get a human person nowadays if you call the bank. You can't call up one of your favorite athletes or celebrities or artists and schedule a lunch for the two of you. Hey, let's hang out. You can't do that. If you want to sit down and have a talk with the President of the United States 
or the governor of, of the state or even your senator or congressman or congresswoman, it's, it's not going to be easy to schedule. You're not going to be able to do that. They're too high above you. They don't have time for those of low estate. Like you need to be someone or something to gain an audience with certain people. You call the president, you know, try to have a, uh, an appointment with the president or like I said, you know, even a congressman or a congresswoman, you, you're, you're probably going to be referred to an inferior of some kind if you're given a response at all, but we know how it works. We know you have to dress up to meet very important people. You have to earn a spot on an NFL roster, right? Or get selected for an award because you contributed something meaningful or earned it or were found worthy of it. That's the way the universe works. That's just the way it is. So surely, surely if there's a God, if there's an ultimate superior to gain an audience with Him, to get a personal visit from Him, for Him to know your name and that you exist, and more than anything, to gain His approval, God's approval, there's no telling what would be required. And so all that that we live in our lives with, we tend to heap on to God. What do I have to do to get God to approve of me? What do I have to do to get God to notice me? God to visit me? God to know I exist and like me or even love me? What hoops does one have to jump through to gain the approval of Almighty God? kind of person do you have to be to get a spot on his team? We spend our entire lives trying to be the kind of person the ones we think so highly of will approve of and accept, especially if it's God. But in a reversal, so great and unheard of in history, the story of the Gospel tell us, tells us that God actually favors the weak link, the obscure, the unknown, the unfavorable. God moves close to the poor who have nothing to offer. God seeks out and approves of and justifies those who have done nothing to earn it. He gives salvation as a gift of grace rather than as a paycheck for services rendered. Mary's song puts the spotlight on that aspect of God's character when she says He has looked on the humble estate of His servant. And having looked on her, rather than moving on, when he saw how lowly Mary was in the world, God came near. We scramble to be rich or famous or strong and secure when God comes near to the poor, the unknown, the weak, and the frail. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. Again, to be Blessed in biblical terms is to be granted favor by God as a gift. The blessing of God's favor in salvation isn't earned, it's given. And Mary praises God because from now on, humans throughout history from among the Jews and Gentiles will call her blessed. How could that ever be true for Mary? Her town isn't even mentioned in history books. It's so obscure, obscure towns think it's obscure. She wasn't even an adult yet. She was a female whose entire hope for security in her culture and in her day was dependent on a man to provide. Mary didn't have the things we are sure you need to have if the elites and especially God are going to bless you. And as such as that, she's a representative of those who are characterized by humility. And listen, this 
Here's the thing when we read this story, we read about Mary's humility. You're going to be tempted to praise Mary for her, her humility. This isn't the kind of humility you can achieve if you read a book about how to be a humble person. It's not that kind of humility. It's not the kind of humility you can work for and get. This is the kind of humility, lowliness, that you have no choice but to possess because nothing in your life would allow you to lie to yourself about who you really are. It's that kind of humility. It's not a humility you earned or got or became. It is who you are. You you have nothing to brag about. You have nothing to show, nothing to give. That's how Mary is of low estate. You could be of low estate and be very rich. Low estate is not about what you have. It's about what you literally are. This young lady didn't possess the right character traits, and so God responded to her. If that was the case, she wouldn't be praising the Lord for mercy. She wouldn't be praising the Lord for grace, for looking on her and giving her favor. If she had earned it, if she was worthy of it, there is no song to sing. There is nothing to be blown away about. There is nothing to be excited about. God recognized you. Well, of course He recognized me. Look how humble I am. Look how lowly I am. Or look how poor I am, or whatever it is. She was revealed to be of low estate when God visited her. She was of low estate. She wasn't trying to be. Right? She wasn't trying to be that. She was that. She was born into that. She bears the Messiah in her womb. She bears the true seed of Abraham through whom all the nations of the world will be blessed by God. Mary magnifies the Lord and she rejoices in God her Savior and concludes by saying that all generations will call her blessed because He who is mighty, the God of all power, has done great things for her and holy is His name. By describing God's name, the one who gave her the child is holy, she acknowledges that the child in her womb is the divine presence of God through whom His final mighty acts of salvation will be accomplished. As the very first Christian, Mary sings because she believes all this will happen despite the lowliness of her condition. Again, don't praise her humility. Praise the God who regards such things. You don't have to go out and make yourself poor and then God will notice you. You have to realize that as God sees you, you're poor. That you have nothing He's interested in getting from you. That's what it means to be of low estate. It is to be so aware of your own poverty before God that you expect nothing from Him. He responds to the prayers and the hopes of the afflicted. God's selection of Mary and her submission were not hindered but facilitated by the lowliness of her condition. When Mary calls God He who is mighty, that's that's going to be the subject of the rest of the song. How is God mighty? What is this mighty? What does He do with His power? With His greatness? Notice now again how God is the subject of all these verbs in verses 51 to 55. He showed strength. He scattered the proud. He brought down the mighty from their 
thrones. He exalted those of humble estate. He filled the hungry with good things. He sent the rich away empty. He helped his servant Israel. He spoke to the fathers and to Abraham and to his offspring forever. When Mary says God is mighty, she's referring specifically to his mighty acts in salvation. It was God who orchestrated the Passover and the Exodus, the two great acts of his salvation in the Old Testament era for Israel in slavery when they could do nothing for themselves. And now his mighty acts of salvation will culminate in the life, the suffering, the death and resurrection of his son, the child who is now growing in Mary's womb by the miraculous work of the Holy Spirit on her. Mary magnifies the Lord because now he's using her to bring about his mighty acts of salvation. Not plagues, not great signs and wonders, not this time. But a young girl of low status that nobody even knows exists. She stands here as a servant of the Lord, as a personification of Israel, and as a pattern for all those of low estate whom God visits with His merciful presence and raises up from the ash heap as an act of pure grace. God has exalted the lowly and the hungry. He's filled with good things. The great reversal. Martin Luther wrote that God is the kind of Lord who does nothing but exalt those of low degree and put down the mighty from their thrones. In short, break what is whole and make whole what is broken. It is Jesus that became the ultimate reversal of God as the Creator, didn't He? He comes to His creation as a creature. He became a fool to the world to become the wisdom of God. He became powerless on the cross to become the power of God. And by doing so, He scatters the proud and thoughts of their own hearts in verse 51. Right? He gives them over to their own delusions of grandeur. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones in verse 52. That's what God did by making His suffering servant Jesus Christ the King of kings and Lord of lords. The one who suffered. The one who had nothing. No place to lay His head. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords in God's economy. In God's kingdom. He rendered all other thrones and powers not just impotent but irrelevant. And the rich he has sent away empty in verse 53. That's interesting. The hungry he has filled, the rich he sent to spiritual starvation in their souls. Emptiness. Why? Because the poor are somehow more righteous than the rich? No. No, because the poor are physically and visibly what we all are spiritually and in reality before God. This is how God accomplishes salvation. The great reversal of all that the world considers great and true and worthy to the poor and lowly and humble. For this, we magnify Him. For this, He becomes the subject of all our worship and the lyrics of all our songs. Now, what do we take from such a text? From such a message? Like I was saying earlier, do we run out and try to get as humble as we can. So the Lord looks on the lowly, I better get low. I need to be more humble. I need to be more humble. I need to be more humble. Or I at least look, you know, need to look more humble. That's usually what it's about. I want others to think I'm humble. Right? 
do we run out and try to get as poor as we can or as hungry as we can and then God will accept us beloved here's the thing the humility God looks upon is not an achievement of some kind it's not a well developed character trait it's simply the recognition of reality biblical humility is ultimately the acknowledgement of God what makes the proud the proud in this text the mighty the mighty in this text and the rich the rich in this text is all the same it's their refusal to receive Jesus as he was sent as the righteousness and power and wisdom and salvation of God it is their rejection of his gift for their own achievements for their own status the gospel is offensive not just because it says we're all sinners. Not just because it is an exclusive claim that there's only one way of salvation. God's Son, Jesus Christ. Yes, that's why it's offensive. That's not the only reason it's offensive. The main reason it's foolishness to the world is because God is saying, I don't want what you have. Stop trying to give it to me. I am not impressed with you. I don't want what you have. You don't have enough. Stop insulting me by trying to give me your piddly little offerings. You can be one of the proud and mighty and rich if you live in a mansion in Washington, D.C. It's amazing all those public servants can afford those. Or, if you're living in an old trailer in the woods, it doesn't matter. You will find as much love for the human spirit among the poor as you do among the rich. You will find as much belief among the poor that we all have the capacity to be good enough. You'll find that in the poor. You'll find it in the rich. I think maybe one of the problems is is that among the rich, you can really look like it. You can really look like you have it all put together and look like you're important and look like you're something because you can afford things. You can cover up reality with what you buy and what you have and where you live, but it's all the same. It is not that Mary's humility gained her God's blessing, again, or she wouldn't be singing about His grace and His favor, or that He is her Savior. God is Mary's Savior. God is not Mary's recognizer. Right? He's not the one that signs Mary's check. Mary was physically what we all are spiritually before God. God moved in on her. He visited and saved her by blessing her with the presence of His Son in her womb who would become the Savior of the world. God blessed Mary so that all the world would know where we stand in relation to God because of our spiritual poverty, because of our sin and our self-centeredness. If we think we can make ourselves humble or poor or hungry enough for God to bless, we already think too highly of ourselves, whether we're poor or rich. When you hear what God requires or what God favors and you say, all right, I'll do it, you've missed it. You already think far too much of who you are. So if you're poor and you think you can honor God by being good enough, or if you're rich and you think you can honor God by being good enough, in your spirit, you're rich. And God will send you away empty with nothing. 
God will break us if we think we are whole. Jesus talked like this, the stone that if anything falls on it, it will be broken to pieces and anything that falls on, He will crush. This is one of the ways that happens. Jesus crushes all that we think we are and have to give to Him by saying, only me or you do not have salvation. That crushes that belief in us. That nagging sense that deep down inside, no, I have to be, I have to do. And it it doesn't get any easier to fight that sinfulness when you're saved because then you really think you can do it. I have God helping me pay Him back now. And you'll get on everybody else too. You need to be doing more. You need to be proving it. You need to be showing it. You talk about grace and what's the first thing out of people's mouth. But you also have to do good works. We didn't say you didn't. Calm down. Right? But we're talking about salvation here. It's, it's just somebody will always think, well, I have to be the one. Because all the, not me, but all you other sinners out there, if you hear about grace, you might go out and sin. Not me, but you might. I'm worried for you. Right? People come and they say, I'm worried that, that people will think you mean it doesn't matter how they live. But you're not worried about yourself. You're, you're way above that. You, not you, but they, these other losers, these other loser Christians, they're not as sharp as me. They might not get it. So you can't just preach grace, right? That's, that's this right here. Like you're, like not you, them. They're lowly. I'm doing all right. The fastest way to be rejected by God is to think and act as though you already are what God sent Jesus to make you. What God sent Jesus to provide for you, you think you already have it. That's what it means to be rich, ultimately. I already have what God says I don't. I already have what God says I need. So I, 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 you know, you can recognize what's good in me. And I, I mean, I can bring you into my life and be Christian and, and you know, traditional and all, I'll, you know, all that sort of stuff. But, like, I'm not poor. I'm not impoverished in my spirit. Not that bad. I'm not them. I'm not him. I'm not her. I've never done that. I would never do that. I would never be seen like that. We're convinced that we have to get to this place where God will accept us. Again, even as believers, we still struggle with this. True humility, true hunger, true poverty before God is to receive His truth and just believe Him without any ifs, ands, or buts. When He says in the flesh dwells no good thing, say okay. Because He does say that in Romans. When He says you cannot please me, say okay then help me. When He says you must be perfect as your Heavenly Father is perfect, die. Okay, then God help me, please. Because Jesus doesn't mean also, in parentheses, if you try really hard to be perfect, that's kind of the same thing. No. You must be perfect as your Heavenly Father is perfect. Jesus said that. So what do you do with that? 
What do you do when you hear Jesus say that? If, if you don't think you're poor, if you don't think you're of such low estate and impoverished spiritually that you literally, the only thing that word can do is crush you when it falls on you, Right? I, I have nothing I can offer. I am only sinful. Right? As, as a believer, we want to do, I want to do good works. I want to obey. And often we do, thank God. Right? And we want to obey more than we want to disobey. Thank God. Absolutely. But it's God. Why aren't my offerings completely perfect and pure? Why doesn't He get all of me? Right? Why can't I give Him everything? Why can't I always obey? It's God. This is what He deserves. This is what He's worthy of. Salvation is God saying, not loosening, not like lowering His standard, lowering the bar so that everybody, you know, can get in. It's, it's not about equity. It's Him saying, I require perfection and holiness and righteousness with no mess-ups. None. None. Not in word, not in thought, not in deed. That God has all the capital to crush you and I. And the richer we are, and the, if you add to what we don't have, the arrogance and pride of thinking we can somehow come up with it, now we're really offending God. One time, it's one of the most shameful moments in parenting because I realized I had overextended my 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 uh, punishment of my daughter. We were walking into church, or walking into home after church, walking into our house after church. Goodness sake! And I, she was carrying my laptop, um, you know, a MacBook laptop. And Sophia was this is in Brawley. She was probably what. 10 maybe? Can't, I can't think, but she dropped it. It fell. Smacks on the concrete. And I was, I was so freaked out and mad. I mean, I, she didn't get a spanking or anything like that, but I, I yelled at her, you know, how could you do that, Sophia? All, all this right. About four or five hours later, Sophia comes to me with a Ziploc bag of coins. And she says, Dad, I'm so sorry. Here, can you please use this to help you buy a new computer. Now, as a father, a human father, I realized you are a jerk. You made this little girl that dropped out on accident think that she did it like she ruined it and she owes you the money for it in the way that you yelled at her. Right? Now, transfer that to yeah, it still, still really bothers me. I mean, that was a pretty rough thing to do. And absolutely precious of her to do. But what did Sophia not realize? And of course it's no insult to her. Those stupid laptops are so expensive. Those coins, she meant, that was more precious than if she would have had the capital to write me a check. It was so precious and so honest and so pure. And it would have done nothing to get me a new laptop. Now, she's not in here this morning, so I'm not worried about it still hurting her feelings, and I don't mean it like I know what I'm saying, right? 
but like it, what's what's the reality of the situation? She was giving the best that she could, the most that she had, the best she could come up with. And it didn't matter how pure her intentions were. It didn't matter how well that she meant. The poor thing didn't understand that that's not, that that's not going to do it. And beloved, we are in the same impoverished predicament. We might mean well and we might be trying very hard. It's not enough. It's not enough. It won't touch it. We get these songs. We sing about grace because none of us should be here. Not one of us deserve to be here. And we're getting heaven and eternal life. We're getting a new heavens and a new earth and all these things. All on the back of Jesus. A hundred percent. It's not 90-10. It's not 99-1. It's not 50-50. It's not 60-40. It's a hundred percent Jesus. Zero percent me. No matter what good works I do after I get saved. And do good works. You're commanded to do good works. They aren't going to add anything to your salvation. They aren't going to justify you more. They aren't going to make God say, man, I made a really good choice with this one. Do you see this one today? No, when God... May I anthropomorphize for a moment, alright? When, when He wants to know whether or not I'm justified, you know where He's going to look? At His Son. At His Son. Are you in Christ? Then you are mine. So the goal is not to clean up, straighten up, fly right, stay right, stay clean, stay straight. That's not the goal. The goal is be in Christ. Now how do I do that? Oh, you just receive Him. That's it. That's it. And you'll find when, when you realize the times in your life where you have these moments of clarity, and, and you really start to realize that you, you've been saved and you've been redeemed and nothing you do will ever snatch you from His hand? Oh my goodness, how can that be the case? You're not going to say, so I'm going to go out and sin as much as I can. You're going to hate your sin more and more over time because you're going to realize how true it is that it won't snatch you out of His hand. Right? And look, you don't need, don't think like, okay, so I need to be like that. No, because when you realize that, you know what's going to happen, you're still going to sin. Right? Again, you're, you're not, you don't, you don't have to try to. It will happen. Because there's the sins that you know you're doing when you do them, and then there's the things you have no idea you've done wrong. There's all the good things you tried to do that are tainted by your own pride. So what are we, what's true humility, true hunger, true poverty? I have nothing I can offer. God, I'm only sinful. I can only be saved by grace. God makes whole what is broken. God breaks what is whole with the gospel. He makes whole what is broken with the gospel. That is what it means to be humble and poor and hungry. That is what the gospel is proclaimed in order to produce in us is faith. Faith. The gospel is pronounced 
so that you would believe it, and so that you would receive this truth. All right, me then. Me. Jesus, me. Look on me. Have favor on me. If you've been saved for 10 seconds, or you want to get saved, or you've been saved for 100 years, that's the right posture. Me. Please, to me. God knows that we're proud when we think we are humble. God knows that we're weak when we think we are mighty. God knows that we're poor when we think we are rich. We are in need of mercy. That is what God has given so that our souls might magnify the Lord and not ourselves. We must pray for the grace as Christians to stay spiritually weak, hungry, and poor before God. That's when we'll be in the best position to love our neighbor as ourselves and serve them and help The only this house is not built on what you and I can bring to the table. The only table that matters in this house is the one we celebrate this morning, where we remember the gifts of Christ's body and blood that were given to us. In Jesus Christ, God breaks what is whole and He makes whole what is broken, and we need to be made whole. We're never going to graduate from our place of utter desperation. And God is a Savior. Receive His salvation.